Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I am your host each week and we try to feature different guests that appeal to a broad variety of professional roles because as you may know from watching previous previous podcasts, that this is now the world's largest distributed and subscribed to weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, reaching over 7 million people worldwide every week. We're honored that you've been joining us now for several years. We have some fantastic guests in the pipeline, including today's guest, who is the futurist known as the author of many books, including a recent release book called 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of everything. He's a professor at the Wharton School. His name is Mauro Guillen. Welcome, Mauro, to On Leadership. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, it is our pleasure. You know, Mauro, each week we pick a different person to join us. Sometimes they're experts on, you know, core leadership skills inside organizations. They might be marketing experts, the difference between extroverts, introverts, sometimes talk about personal finance, a broad variety. And I came across your book a few weeks ago. And this is the first book where we actually have focused the conversation on what does the future really look like? Your book is titled 2030. Before we get into some of the research, would you tell us a bit why you picked that as the title and why did you kind of aim the orientation around the year 2030? Well, it's about uh, the year 2030 because uh, precisely in 10 years from today, I think we're gonna be in the world in a very different situation. I know uh, we're going to get into a lot of details, but uh, let me just give you three of them. Africa will be the, la the second largest region by population by the year 2030. China will be the largest consumer market. We're going to have in the world more grandparents than grandchildren. And I think we're going to see by that time cryptocurrencies also being more widely used around the world. So it's a pivotal moment. The world you and I were born in is going to be gone by the year 2030. So the book is all about how we can prepare for that future. Mauro, you're a world-renowned futurist trend identifier. You're a professor at the Wharton School in Pennsylvania. For those listeners who may be being introduced to you for the first time today, although you are the author of numerous books, could you reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey, how you became a professor at Wharton, and a bit of the highlight, some highlights of your career? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Spain. That's where my accent comes from. And I came here to the United States uh, to get my PhD, my doctorate. I was very lucky to be given that opportunity. Uh, so I came here and I completed my dissertation. And then I thought, let's uh, hang out here in the United States for a little bit longer. So I went onto the job market. I got a job at MIT at the Sloan School of Management. And I liked it so much that I decided to stay. Then I got married, I have children now. So it's already been more than 30 years here in the United States. And what I do every day is essentially try to do research on where global consumer and financial markets and the world as a whole are headed in the future. And I essentially interact uh, you know, every day with my students. I also do a lot of work at companies and I'm a public speaker. So that's what I do on a daily basis. Mauro, you submitted your manuscript to your publisher around March of 2020, right when the COVID-19 pandemic was just beginning to explode, hadn't really made it entirely here to the U.S. in full force yet. And I, I've watched several of your podcast interviews and media interviews recently. And although you are not an epidemiologist, you're not a physician, you obviously have great access to people at the highest levels of academia 
government affairs and organizations. What can you tell our listeners and viewers today about the pandemic, the coming vaccine, and generally what you see the COVID-19 virus and how it's shaping, reshaping the landscape of our daily lives? Well, look, I think the answer is relatively straightforward. This pandemic is a great accelerator of trends. Uh, so the trends that I discuss in the book are being essentially intensified by the pandemic. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so the rise of emerging markets, as you know, East Asia, all of those countries from South Korea to Taiwan to Vietnam, China, etc. They are bringing this virus under control much faster than we are. So their economies are recovering faster and they're going to resume growth much earlier than ours. So that future in which China in particular will be the largest consumer market in the world is now going to be arriving faster. And I think the other big example is the use of technology. I dedicate you know, about a third of the book to how technology is changing our lives and the future. And it's very clear that this pandemic has accelerated our use of technology for playing, for working, for learning, for all sorts of things. So in other words, uh, Scott, my only regret is that instead of titling the book 2030, now in light of uh, how the pandemic is accelerating everything, maybe a more accurate title would be 2028, because that future is actually arriving faster now as a result of this wretched pandemic. Mauro, I want to touch on about five or six different uh, themes, big themes in the book. The first is around population and population trends. And in some way, you might even dispel you know, common methodologies around who's growing and who's shrinking and why. Would you just kind of give us a broad overview on where the world's population is going, which countries will be rising in terms of um, new births and new growth, which ones are shrinking, and perhaps for those listeners here in the Western Hemisphere, in the U.S., what is the future of the U.S. population look like and what implications that, does that have on our lives? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's actually the first step in my methodology in terms of trying to understand what the future will bring. What I do is I try to follow the babies. I try to understand how many babies will be born in the world and also how long they will live. And you know, uh, the birth rate um, is declining. Um, the number of children per woman has been declining for a long time in the world but hasn't declined at the same pace all over the world, has declined faster in places like Japan or China or Europe, or even here in the United States. While at the same time, although it is declining, it's still much higher in South Asia or in Africa. So here we see the first big change, which is that the centers of gravity of population in the world are gonna be shifting away from primarily East Asia and Europe towards South Asia and um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Here in the United States, uh, uh, you know, we're not as extreme in terms of the, the decline in the number of babies as Europe or Japan. Uh, so the U.S. population will be more steady. Now, the second big change, of course, is that we're living longer and longer and longer. Life expectancy is growing and it's especially growing very fast in the emerging markets and in developing countries. And so what this means then for the year 2030, once again, is that the populations in the world are gonna be more important in places like South Asia, including India or Sub-Saharan Africa. But at the same time also, let's not forget the other big thing that we're gonna see is that the population above the age of 60 is gonna be the largest uh, segment of the population. And it's gonna be the largest part of the consumer market here in the United States, for instance, as well as in Europe, in China, in Japan. Now that's a big change because if you remember up until now, companies will always focus 
on middle-aged people, people in their 30s, people in their 40s. That would normally be the largest consumer segment. From now on, it will be the population above age 60. That's a big change. And that's going to change American businesses. It's going to change companies around the world. So let's talk about that for a moment, because in the book you talk specifically to sort of the graying population and how organizations, leadership inside companies are going to have to rethink their mindsets, their paradigms, their beliefs around how they value perhaps that older segment of their employee workforce, because these people are staying in their careers more. They're more technically savvy. What advice would you give to chief human resource officers, to chief people officers, to people who are responsible for recruiting and retaining people that might need to shift their paradigm around how this aging, graying segment is going to be more relevant than ever? Yes, this is a very important uh, trend. And I think uh, talent managers, HR managers at companies need to pay a lot of attention to this. And I think the single most important point, Scott, is that you know, a 65-year-old or a 70-year-old today is in much better mental and physical shape than a 65 or a 70-year-old person, let's say, 30 years ago. Uh, and those people at that age have another 25 or 30 years in life expectancy ahead of them. That's another lifetime. And we're wasting their experience. We're wasting their knowledge. I don't think we should let all of those people retire. I think companies and other types of organizations should tap into that expertise. And, and by the way, many of them don't want to retire. They would prefer to be uh, working at least part time because otherwise, you know, a 25 year long retirement strikes me as a very long time. <laughs> so I think companies need to fundamentally rethink uh, this idea that the most productive workers are those in their 40s, perhaps in their 50s. I think companies and other organizations so seriously retain their labor force beyond age 60 or 65. And again, remember, a 65-year-old today is in much better shape than a 65-year-old 20 or 30 years ago. And that person has experience, has skills, has knowledge. They're useful to society, to the economy, and to companies. I think that's my experience, too. I look at the people in my life that are perhaps in their you know, 60s and even mid-70s. My father-in-law, my mother-in-law, these are you know, very sharp professionals that have expertise in their industries, and they're still working in consulting. I'm sure they'll be glad to hear your trend there. Uh, let me pivot a second. We've heard a lot about the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on female employees female executives, female leaders, because the nature of the family is that they're, in many cases, having to choose or practically choosing to step away from their career to take control of their family because of virtual learning and the risks happening with their children. In the book, you talk to this sort of rebalance of wealth towards women in the future, away from men, not entirely away from men, but that perhaps you know, the wealth will shift towards women. Would you speak to that point around the future shift of wealth towards women? And do you see that being interrupted at all with this sort of surprise negative impact that um, the career workplace is having on disproportionately towards females? Yes. Yeah, so the projection in the book is that by the year 2030, more than half of the net worth in the world will be owned by women. And this percentage has been growing over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, primarily because more women are attending college, more women are pursuing their own careers, more women are essentially overcoming all of those barriers that once existed. And some of them, of course, continue to exist. I don't want to deny 
the uh, presence of uh, uh, wage discrimination or salary pay discrimination at many companies. But here's the point, Scott. The important point to keep in mind is that, yes, the pandemic has had a negative effect on women. Uh, many of them have lost their jobs, especially in retail, in restaurants, and so on and so forth. Uh, and also, women uh, during confinement in the home, they do take on average more tasks, household tasks, than men, even if they're working. Yeah. So the pandemic has been particularly hard on women. Having said that, many women who are now educated, they have uh, jobs uh, such as yours or mine, they can work from the home. So they're continuing to make progress. And here in the United States, we have more women in college than men. So I think the pandemic uh, will probably come down in history as uh, you know, two or three years that were very tough on women. But I think those trends towards uh, women making progress with their careers, women accumulating more wealth than in the past, I think will continue. I think this is just a, uh, a short intermission Great. in that long trend that has been going on now for 30 years or so, that as I was saying, earlier by the year 2030 will produce a situation in which women will own more than half of the wealth in the world. Mar, let's pivot to sex. Let's talk about sex. In the book, you uh, share an interesting correlation between, uh, you might say, the birth rate and the decline of sexual activity amongst couples and its relation to technology. I had never thought about that, but can you speak to that? Yes. Um, so I started to research that issue because I was seeing in many surveys uh, that people, young people in their 20s, in their 30s, were essentially spending a lot of time on social media or perhaps playing video games and so on and so forth. And uh, they're no longer uh, building social relationships uh, and committing uh, to somebody, uh, a life partner, um, and, uh, you know, to the same extent that uh, previous generations did. And not only that, also, uh, that they were having sex uh, less uh, frequently. Um, so I think this is undeniably also something that is uh, accelerating that trend towards lower birth rates, uh, so fewer babies um, in the world. And uh, I always mention the uh, natural experiment that took place on the island of Zanzibar. This is part of Tanzania in East Africa. In 2008, they had a power blackout that lasted for one month. Uh, but one part of the island has a connection to the grid, so people there went without power for one month, so they couldn't play video games, they couldn't recharge their phones, and so on and so forth. But the other part of the island, where they never had a connection to the grid, they uh, continued to use their diesel generators, so they continued to have power. And you know what? Nine months later, what happened was that among the families that um, went without power, there was an increase in 21% in the number of babies relative to normal conditions. Whereas in those parts where they continue to have power, there was no change whatsoever in the number of babies. So yes, after looking at the issue uh, carefully, I have concluded that technology, such as video games, social media, those are smartphones that we use uh, all the time, they are distracting us from building relationships, from having babies, and therefore that is accelerating the decline in, in uh, the number of births. Mar, I know you're not a social scientist by trade or by credential, but we hear this concept of, you know, COVID babies, babies that were, you know, um, uh, uh, conceived during the stay-at-home orders or pandemic. Do we expect to see seven months, nine months from now, an explosion of uh, new births? And is that true or not true? And is that good or bad in terms of uh, our, our, our country? You kind of dispel some of the... Um, doomsdayers that say the, you know, the world cannot ever support 
seven and a half billion people. Talk a bit about COVID babies and bring some truth to the idea of how many people can our world support? Yeah, so uh, let me first speak to the COVID babies. So you're right, home confinement may produce uh, somewhat of an increase in the number of babies, the same way that not, not having TV or not having a phone right. or access to social media may also have the same result. However, uh, there's another thing induced by the pandemic which goes in the opposite direction, which is that the pandemic has generated an economic recession. And when people lose their jobs or when people are fearful that they might be losing their jobs, then they postpone making big decisions. And having a baby is a big decision. So as part of this pandemic, what we're seeing is that many young couples are postponing having babies. And that, of course, works in the opposite direction of those COVID babies that you were referring to. And I actually believe that the recession effect, the economic effect, um, you know, couples postponing things because they see uncertainty, maybe because they've lost their jobs, that is more powerful. Now to the other issue, how many people can we have on the planet? Well, if you remember more than 200 years ago, there was a British economist by the name of Thomas Malthus who said that, uh, you know, uh, the world, uh, planet Earth will become overpopulated. Now, if you remember, he underestimated how much technology, especially the revolution in agriculture uh, and the increase in productivity uh, could help us uh, have uh, more people on planet Earth. Uh, having said that, I think now we may be reaching that limit in the sense that hey, every uh, 10, 15 years, we add another billion people to planet Earth. But you know what? The decline in the number of births is so dramatic, has been so dramatic over the last uh, 50 years or so. So it has come down on average from five babies per woman down to 2.3, which is barely about replacement. That I don't think we're going to have an overpopulation problem in the world. Because sometime around the year 2050 or 2055, I think we will reach a maximum in terms of the number of people on the planet. I think, quite on the contrary, and this is what I write about in my book, that instead of uh, having a problem with too many babies, we may have a problem in the world with too few babies in the sense that we're going to have aging populations. And of course, all of those doomsday scenarios about social security, about pensions, about uh, uh, the growth in healthcare costs are going to become a, a bigger problem. Uh, than uh, overpopulation because of the demographic trends. Mauro, let's talk about technology. I'd like to set aside for a moment uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, because I'm going to have you give us a lesson on those, if you will, because we hear them, but I'm not sure everybody really knows what blockchain is, and it's obviously broader than just currencies. Can you speak broadly to what are some of the big trends, market trends you see around technology, mobile phones, things like that, that are changing the landscape on how we live our lives, but also how leaders and organizations should be thinking about mobility, connectedness, engagement, and looking at their customers and clients maybe differently? Yeah, so I think this is, uh, over the next 10 years, something that is literally going to change the world. Let me begin with smartphones. Uh, we assume that everybody's got a smartphone, and that's not true, not even here in the United States. Only 81% of the population has a smartphone. But when you consider that um, uh, issue globally, then only about 40% of the world population has a smartphone. There, there's a lot of other people who have a cell phone, uh, like a less advanced uh, device. Uh, but uh, I think over the next 10 years, we're going to see that instead of just 40% of people in the world owning a smartphone, we're going to see 60%, 70%, 80%. So a continuation of that uh, trend. Now, the other big thing is automation. 
Um, so uh, the pandemic actually accelerates this trend, has been going on for a long time in the manufacturing sector in particular. But you know, during the pandemic, uh, we've seen that many companies couldn't get going because they didn't have the supplies or because their employees were falling sick. So automation, I think as a result of this pandemic is going to be uh, intensified and it's going to reach the service sector big time, hotels, retail, education, everything, right? So that's a big change that I'm expecting for the next 10 years. Another one is artificial intelligence. We're moving into a, a new, brave, brave new world in which, you know, doctors are going to be using AI applications to try to find the best treatment for a particular uh, patient. And also that AI is going to make our transportation systems smart. And we're not going to be uh, wasting so much energy or so much time in traffic and so on and so forth. And then lastly, the other thing that I want to bring to your listeners' attention is something I think uh, really, really important for the future, which is that I think this combination of smartphones, AI, automation, all of these things are going to help us perhaps tackle the problem of climate change. Because you see, I think we've been relying too much on agreements among governments on major breakthroughs in terms of the energy that uh, we use and uh, greener and renewable sources. But I think we also need to change people's behavior. As consumers, we're too wasteful and that generates a lot of carbon emissions. So I think through technology, smartphones, AI, we can help people like you and I become so much more uh, you know, conscious uh, consumers in the sense of uh, wasting less and leaving behind a smaller carbon footprint. That's encouraging. Let's talk about uh, blockchain and then cryptocurrencies. But before you do, I want you to like bring it down to my level because I, I understand it peripherally, but I'd love it if you would maybe give me a little bit of a, a lecture uh, on what is blockchain and why is it important? And you, you hear all kinds of opinions about it being you know, part of kind of the, you know, the dark web and it's you know, empowering you know, nefarious forces. Will you just give us a bit of a primer on what is blockchain? Why is it so important? How is it gonna impact us? And then perhaps move into the power and either illegitimacy or legitimacy of cryptocurrencies and currency in general. Yeah, so let's begin with the blockchain. So the blockchain is the technology that underlies cryptocurrencies. So uh, the uh, Bitcoin, when it was invented, it was a new cryptocurrency that was built on the blockchain. But the blockchain is a very simple concept. So it's a registry. You're registering things that happen. So imagine that instead of uh, having a digital registry, what you have is a physical one. Let's say it's a wall. It's a brick wall. And in every brick, you just register something. For example, at a hotel, who is the guest who goes to a room? And you inscribe that event on the wall in one of the bricks. But now, once you've inscribed the brick, you can no longer take it away. You can not erase it. So that's another very important aspect of the blockchain, that the registries, the records that you inscribe in it, are absolutely immutable. They can never change, okay? So you use each brick on the wall to register one such event, the guests that arrive at the hotel and they enter a room. And then you also make another record when the, the guest uh, uh, leaves the room, leaves the hotel and pays the bill and for how much. When you've run out of bricks on that wall, you build a second wall and so on and so forth. Each brick is organized in a linear way. So the records are essentially 
um, uh, you know, immutable, but also they're ordered, right? And so what happens later along those records on the wall, along those bricks, then brings you up to date to what the situation is today. So now imagine that instead of, uh, you know, having a physical wall, you have that registry online. And that has two advantages. One is that it's considerably cheaper, but also that everyone can see it, right? So it's an immutable registry where the bricks or the little pieces, the little records are ordered. And then on top of that, everyone has access to it. Now, this technology is extremely powerful because it can help us move all sorts of things, all sorts of transactions, markets, registries that right now we have on paper right onto the digital world. And that essentially opens up a new universe of opportunity. And cryptocurrencies, well, that's why they use the blockchain, because what you need is to keep track of who owns that particular Bitcoin or that particular unit of cryptocurrencies. Now, again, you're not erasing it when that currency changes hands. You're not erasing the records. What you're doing is creating a new record that updates the older information. So that's the logic behind the blockchain is, I think, quite simple. And again, what makes it so powerful is that now we can do that digitally online for everyone to see. Mauro, speak to cryptocurrencies. Recently, we interviewed the famed financial author, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. In the US, he wrote the books, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. These books have sold 40 million copies. He was quite dismissive of um, the nefariousness of cryptocurrencies, you know, and, and returning to kind of old-fashioned principles. As a, as a professor at Wharton, as an enormously credible um, futurist and thought leader, the average leader, the average husband, father, mother out there working, what would you tell us about the future of currencies and cryptocurrencies? What should we be aware of, concerned about, and where should we have confidence? Uh, look, I actually agree with uh, all of those people who are saying that they don't see cryptocurrencies as such succeeding in the world. And the reason, Scott, is very simple, which is that governments have had a monopoly over the printing of money for at least 100 years, right? Here in the United States for a little bit over 100 years since the Federal Reserve was founded just before World War I. And governments are very reluctant to give up that monopoly because that gives them control over monetary policy. And there's probably quite a few reasons if you ask a monetary economist as to why it's important for the government or for the central bank, in our case, the Federal Reserve, to continue having that monopoly. So I agree with those people who believe that the reason why Libra, you remember this currency that Facebook launched and 25 other yes. companies joined about yep. uh, a year and a half ago. Yep. Now nobody's talking about Libra any longer because central banks around the world, including the Fed, came out saying, we don't like this, right? And the same goes for Bitcoin, right? I mean, Bitcoin price started to decline three years ago when governments, especially the Federal Reserve said, we don't like this thing. They don't want to lose control. And that's why I argue in the book that cryptocurrencies will never succeed if they are just a substitute for money. So instead of cryptocurrencies, what I propose in the book is that we should be thinking about digital tokens. And those digital tokens may incorporate some digital currency as part of them, but they are way more than that. They're also discount coupons. They're also incentives to, for example, um, you know, avoid wasting so much energy. There are also uh, tokens that help us, for example, vote in elections or interact with our local government, secure a license, uh, and so on and so forth. 
So I think we need to move away from the concept of cryptocurrency because I don't think that would ever, that would ever be allowed or tolerated by governments and central banks, but rather we need to embrace the concept of digital tokens that include cryptocurrency as a component, but that then add so many other things, so many other functionalities uh, that I think will make our lives so much more efficient and so much uh, better. Mauro, I imagine you give lots of keynote speeches around the world, both live in person and virtually. In fact, I can envision you perhaps even keynoting Franklin Covey's global conference. Uh, when you speak with CEOs, leaders of organizations, boards of directors, product development specialists, are there some particular market trends that you advise them on that they should be thinking less about this and more about that? Focus on this and less on that. Give us some insights around as organizational leaders, things that we should not be caught off guard about. Yeah, so look, um, I always tell them about uh, the impact that some of these population trends that we've been discussing are gonna have and also trends in emerging markets. So uh, if I'm specifically speaking to consumer goods companies, I will tell them, look, focus on those emerging markets and uh, be careful. China is gonna be the largest uh, consumer market eventually, but shortly thereafter, India will become the largest consumer market, even uh, larger than China, let's say by the year 2045 or so. And the reason is that India today has more babies than China, so they have a younger population. And of course, you know, sales of homes, automobiles, consumer durables, those things drive consumption. I always tell them about technology and how technology, I think, is going to make, for example, old age, what today we call old age, uh, a thing of the past. I don't think uh, we're going to have old age any longer because technology is going to ensure that we have a lifestyle when we are in our 60s, in our 70s, in our 80s, uh, which is gonna be a very active lifestyle. So I essentially bring to their attention what's going on with demographics and what's going on with emerging markets and emerging technologies. And I put all those three things together to show them that consumer markets and financial markets are going to change in dramatic ways over the next 10 years. These changes are converging right now. And of course, I always say, tell them, this is the moment in which to prepare. Don't wait until the year 2030. You need to start preparing now. Mara, what are you most concerned about and what are you most encouraged about? I think my biggest concern right now is of course the pandemic, uh, but more broadly, I think it's the lack of uh, collaboration and uh, the lack of, uh, you know, of an exchange of ideas uh, in the world. I think uh, uh, we need to try to learn from one another much more than what we're doing right now. I'm obviously also concerned about the problem of climate change because I think we're starting to see some of the consequences, some of the implications. And there is probably something that we can do, uh, not just in terms of government policy, but also, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, consumer behavior. Uh, but look, I'm an optimist. I see most of these changes as challenges that can be turned into opportunities. I don't necessarily see them as threats, but let me tell you something that I think is really important in that respect, which is that inevitably there's gonna be winners and losers. As you know, inequality has been growing and the pandemic is only accelerating that trend. Uh, you mentioned the uh, gender dynamics earlier, but we also have race, we also have uh, by income. I mean, some people don't have the luxury that you and I have that we can work from home. They actually have to show up at work and therefore they're more exposed to the effects of this pandemic. 
So inequality is getting accelerated. And I hope that over the next few years, we don't make the mistake of forgetting about the people who lose out as a result of all of these technological trends, all of these economic and uh, demographic trends in the world. So if we want um, society and the economy to work properly, I think we should take care of those who are displaced by some of these trends, some of these forces. Beautifully said. Mara, our time is ending. You write pretty extensively about the collaboration economy and how you know the average professional doesn't look like what our belief system of the average professional looks like or sounds like or should be like anymore. Will you talk a bit, a bit to this idea of what the future of the collaboration economy looks like and how maybe some of us can not just take part of it, but leverage it? Yeah, so we've seen the beginnings of it with Uber or the Chinese equivalent, Didi, uh, or with Airbnb. Um, but I think there's so much more scope. And let me just tie it to the problem of climate change. Uh, you see, we waste a lot of food. And the agricultural sector, including the distribution of the food, is the single biggest contributor to carbon emissions. I think we should be sharing more of our food, not just for those people who don't have food, but also so that we don't waste as much. And therefore, we can reduce carbon emissions. But we're only at the beginning of that process. And I think sharing platforms implemented as an app on your phone, the same way that you have an app for Uber or Lyft, that can help us move in that direction. Another one is sharing of clothes. So we have Render Runway out there and other similar platforms. But you know, that's another wasteful area in our economy. We buy way too many clothes and some of them we only wear once or twice. Uh, and the clothing industry is the third or the fourth largest contributor to global carbon emissions. So I think the collaborative economy can go in so many directions. And I really hope that it develops in such a way that it enables us to tackle the problem of climate change, to tackle the problem of uh, environmental pollution, and that it helps us make our cities so much more livable than they are nowadays. Thank you for your time. Your uh, contribution in this book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, is a book that every leader, every CEO, um, every business leader, every board of director, um, not-for-profit, you know, regardless of NGO, should be reading this book, really is a gift to humanity in terms of helping us understand where is the future headed and what is our contribution to help to shape that? Mauro, thank you for your time today. Tell us, what is next for you? Obviously, you're talking on the book. What's next on the horizon for you in terms of your projects? Well, I'm obviously trying to uh, you know, spread the word about the ideas contained in the book. Yes. Uh, but I am beginning a big project that has to do precisely with the last question that you asked me, uh, with uh, digital platforms and how they are transforming our lives. Uh, not only sharing platforms, but all sorts of platforms in a variety of industries and parts of the economy. And uh, that's my next project. I, I really want to understand more deeply how all of these apps that we use on our smartphones are, are changing our lives, are changing businesses, and are changing the economy. Mauro Guillen, thank you for your abundance and your generosity speaking to our global audience today. Greatly appreciated. Best of success to you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Our honor. Hey, thanks for joining us. Fascinating book. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of 2030. It has definitely changed a lot of my, or challenged and changed a lot of my mindsets about what I think and where Franklin Covey can best position our solutions globally for the, uh, the future as well, and how my three boys are going to become relevant and great contributors to our world 
um, in the next decade as well. Thank you for joining us today. If you aren't subscribing to Franklin Covey's podcast, visit franklincovey.com and register for On Leadership. Comes out every Tuesday in the form of both an email and also a podcast platform. Includes a downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's tool chest as well as a blog from me each week. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for a new interview on leadership. Mm -hmm.